Hello and welcome to Historical Hysteria. My name is Nicholas Ward and today we are starting on a whirlwind tour of medieval Japan and its many, many, many myths. From swords to honour to tentacle monsters, we are going to take a long look at what the biggest myths of Japan are and why they have developed. There are too many myths about Japan to cover in a single episode, so this is going to be a mini-series on various myths. This first episode is a whirlwind tour of Japan from the 12th to the 19th century. We will be exploring the sword-wielding samurai and the Edo period that gave rise to so many of the myths about the land of the rising sun. In today's episode, we will be talking about the samurai, mystic ancient knights of the Far East, so glorious, wonderful, quiet, and honourable fighting with their mystic swords. What honourable, dark, mysterious, and honourable secrets lie under their surface. Let's find out. Well, I'm just going to rip this band-aid right off. The samurai were not ancient, mysterious, or terribly honourable for that matter. The samurai were initially the warrior class of Japan and would go on to become the effective ruling class. A warrior class has existed in Japan since... Well, almost forever, but the samurai as we today think of them were born around the 12th century CE. Prior to the 12th century, Japan is ruled by the aristocratic class and the emperor, who are separated from their fighting classes, who become known as the samurai. However, the power of the emperor and the aristocracy is dispersed among local leaders, and as often happens in societies like this, the fighting classes at some point ask, Why are we listening to you again? This is best summed up by Mark Anthony during the fall of the Roman Republic, Stop quoting laws to those of us with swords. This awakening of the samurai class starts a series of clan wars between those loyal to the emperor and those less loyal to the emperor. The end result is the birth of the shogunate. The shogun is generally described as a military dictator. This is an imperfect term, however it is accurate enough. The shogun does not kill the emperor. Instead, a complex power-sharing arrangement is put in place where the shogun lets the emperor live as a figurehead, making the true power the shogun. Following this, the emperor and the remaining aristocracy are more or less imprisoned in their palaces. However, much like the emperor before him, the shogun finds he has very limited control over clans, over the clans of Japan. And between the 12th and the 17th century, the shogun acts less like a dictator and more like a mediator. Clan disputes often spiralled into war, which the shogun is largely powerless to control. The rise of the shogun flips Japanese society on its head, and though the aristocracy remains, their lands and powers are re redistributed around the samurai clans. In this way, samurai are similar to European knights, where the ruling class and the fighting class are one and the same, but not entirely. Samurai would quickly fill the gaps the aristocracy had left, becoming administrators, clerks, officials, landlords, and of course mercenaries and soldiers. Now, many of the myths around Japan are born in 1542, with the Portuguese, Dutch, and British trade missions bringing with them Christianity and guns. This will shortly help trigger a massive civil war, with some clans adopting guns and others not. Somewhat unsurprisingly, it is the clans who adopt guns, such as the Tokugawa, who come out on top, forming the Tokugawa Shogunate that will rule Japan until the Meiji Restoration in 1868. This period is called the Edo Period, after the Tokugawa capital of Edo, modern-day Tokyo. And it is the Tokugawa who, in 1633, notoriously closed Japan to foreigners. Kind of. It is often presented in European history that Japan became isolationist and closed its borders in 1633. This is kind of a myth. Edo Japan as a nation continues trading relatively freely with China and Korea. The borders will be mostly closed to anyone outside of East Asia, but not entirely. But that description does not really roll off the tongue, does it? 
The Tokugawa, unlike any other shogunate, had an unparalleled level of control over the country thanks to their guns and a generation of near-total war across Japan. One of the first acts of the Tokugawa was to centralise power. Slowly, gun-making became licensed, then monopolised to Kyoto, then abolished for all but Tokugawa gunsmiths. After this, the Tokugawa ordered all non-residential castles in Japan demolished. This takes place over a few decades until the Tokugawa are the only clan with wide access to firearms and fortresses in the nation, leaving everyone else completely at their mercy. This allows them to effectively end the Warring Clans period of Japan. The Tokugawa will use this power to entrench class divides and bring a prosperous and peaceful period of brutal and terrifying autocracy to the nation. But you may be asking, what does a class whose power and position is dependent on fighting do in an era of peace? And the answer is as simple as it is boring. Bureaucracy. The entire samurai class are effectively converted to bureaucrats, managing land, crunching numbers, assessing taxes. The samurai continue to learn many of their classical disciplines, sword fighting, archery, horse riding, but in an era of guns this is entirely recreational. The Tokugawa are very careful to maintain their monopoly on firearms and will keep large arsenals of state-of-the-art weapons ready to use if another clan gets out of line. This creates an odd situation where though the people are living something akin to a medieval existence, the Tokugawa are firmly in the gunpowder era. Though there is a powerful and overarching authority armed to the teeth with firearms while everyone else is still walking around with swords and spears. Every year the Tokugawa stage huge military parades with their guns front and centre just to remind everyone who is in charge. The Tokugawa also establish a highly effective secret police force, and it is the Edo period where most of modern myths about Japan start. One of the most egregious of these myths about Edo is born in 1854 when Admiral Perry arrives with the American Armada to force the country open. The story goes that the Japanese are prepared for Perry patrolling the beaches with swords, bows and spears. This is completely untrue, though the story has been replicated by both the Europeans and the Japanese. Japan had cannons. Many cannons. And when the Americans arrive, the Tokugawa armies and their samurai are armed to the teeth with state-of-the-art guns and cannons that are state-of-the-art for the 17th century. The Japanese are armed with aquabuses and brass cannons designed 150 years ago. Unfortunately for the Japanese, by the 19th century, technology had moved on to such an extent that it rendered all out-of-date military technology effectively useless. The sudden increase in range and devastation of weaponry in the mid-19th century completely changes warfare. Now, the common myth of 1854 is that the Japanese, so awed by the European fleet's size, cower and surrender in terror. There is a simpler explanation, though. The Japanese had front row seats to the horror and devastations of the Opium Wars in 1839, in which the British forced open Chinese trade by levelling city after city in China, while the Chinese, who had similar military technology to the Japanese, were just completely unable to fight back, due to the range of British guns. The British committed just 20,000 soldiers to this campaign against the Qing Dynasty, who fielded something in the realm of 200,000, and yet between 1839 and 1842, 4,000 Chinese were killed, while the British lost just 69 people. The increased range of modern cannons rendered their fleet untouchable, so maybe Edo Japan just started screaming and weeping at the sight of a big wooden ship that weren't that much bigger than ships they had been seeing in Nagasaki for the last 250 years, or maybe the Japanese looked at the devastation in China and went, oh shit, we don't stand a chance. Both are equally valid arguments if your view of foreigners is that they are a bunch of stupid superstitious cave people. And it is what comes next that solidifies the many, many myths of Japan that take root in the West. When European traders start to arrive in earnest in the mid-19th century, Japan does look a world away from what they are used to, because it has been designed to look that way. 
and forced to look like a medieval society. For societies in the throes of industrialization, Japan looks like something lifted from a fairy tale, and it plays perfectly with a strong romantic art movement which for the last 100 years had been waxing lyrical about the Middle Ages. What the Europeans failed to see was the gun-making foundries, the large and mobile bureaucracy, and the strong centralised government who were very interested in quickly industrializing. Instead of seeing a fairly developed empire with slightly archaic technology, Europeans return, return home with stories of a fantastical medieval society with mystic knights sparring in city squares for the chance to impress white-faced beauties. At the time in Europe, romanticism about the Middle Ages was all the rage, and Japan was just too perfect a fit for that. As though someone had lifted all of the most ridiculous and romanticised stories about the Middle Ages and made it real. Because in some ways, that's exactly what Japan was. Because Japan's society was a facade like colonial Williamsburg, but on a national level. Following the rise of the Tokugawa shogunate, many in the clans looked on, on guns with horror, and following the death of the first Tokugawa shogun, the shogunate embarked on a centuries-long obsession with preserving and maintaining the traditional samurai way of life. As always happens when people start trying to preserve tradition, what is preserved is a romanticised view of the past. Japan was no different. Shogunate was very interested in preserving the samurai way of life, minus the constant warfare and challenges to the central government. Over the next two centuries, samurai would become, in essence, the greatest cosplayers of all time. And when the Europeans encountered Japanese society, they were seeing a sculpted and designed world. Unsurprisingly, many of our interpretations of Japan and Japanese history are today hilariously off because of this. The samurai bureaucrats, for instance, loved to practice sword fighting and engaged in beautifully choreographed murder ballet. They also wrote plays and epic poems hearkening to the past in which the samurai were amazing mythical warriors, which were no more historically accurate than Tennyson's poetry about King Arthur. However, where Europeans had no problem relegating the Romantics as historical fiction, much of the Romantic fiction which came out of the Edo period, and the fiction it would inspire in Imperial Japan, has been and still is treated as a historical fact. That was a quick crash course in 12th to 19th century Japanese history just to quickly explore the where, why, and how of Japanese myths. And over this mini-series on Japan, we will be exploring further myths of Japan from swords to Bushido to Geisha and Ninja in greater detail. Next week is Bushido, the ancient warrior code of Japan and how it was born way, way back in 20th century San Francisco. But before I leave, let me leave you with this. On May 9th, 1864, during the American Civil War, General John Sedgwick of the Union Army berated his flinching men, saying, Why are you dodging like this? They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. A moment later, he was shot under the left eye and died almost instantly. Last lines are often fictitious. This story and the last words, or something like them, were confirmed by multiple witnesses, though it is likely the story he was shot mid-sentence or immediately afterwards is probably an apocryphal edition later. Thank you for listening today, and have a good one.